for example, if it's like you, you touch the doorknob every time you walk into the patient's room or you're washing your hands every time you're in the patient's room, just kind of like take five seconds, breathe and think like, okay, I want to help this person. I want to make their day better. And sometimes it just takes that little reminder, that little five seconds of breathing to kind of center you again and to hopefully make you much more successful with that. Hey there, and welcome to Burnout to Lit Up podcast. I'm your host, Erica, occupational therapist, quirky OT, researcher, educator. And today's episode is all about humanizing healthcare. And I emphasize I in humanizing because I have Dr. Shirazian, an optometrist, come on the show. And that so happens to be her lovely Instagram handle, humanizing healthcare. And she goes deep into the art of patient care. So she calls it the art of doctoring. And even if you are not a doctor, you're a physical therapist, occupational therapist, it's still the art of patient care, the art of therapying or the art of nursing or insert your profession here. Um, So before I go into my biggest takeaways from this episode... I would like to share that there will be quite a bit of changes coming to my brand entirely. Changes that I would have never even thought of doing a week ago, much less ever. Um, And change is good. Change is essential. I listen to Headspace podcast. No, I listen to the Headspace meditation app. Every morning they have the morning wake up. And on Thursday mornings, they've been featuring baby animals and their journey in the world, or they feature a nature segment, and they talk about impermanence and how nothing is permanent, things are changing, that's how the world works, and that's how we work, and there will be significant changes coming, but they will be coming slow, they will be coming gradual, And this is a really big deal. And I'm having a moment of what I recently came across, this Greek word called metanoia, which is change in one's way of life resulting from penitence or spiritual conversion. But it can also mean just a transformative change of heart. So that's what I've been having. There is still a lot of meetings and discussions to be had about these changes. A few weeks and a few months from now, you will be seeing these changes and I want to prepare people. And this is for the best, for the best of myself, for me delivering the best type of content. And that involves change. Change is good. Okay. So today's episode, I mentioned the art of doctoring. My favorite takeaways from this episode from Dr. Shirazian, she talks about the hard data that comes with the quote-unquote soft skills of patient communication. She talks about best practices for patient communication, which focuses on adherence over compliance, and she differentiates the two. She talks about getting to know your patients outside of their disease or condition and the difference between caring for a patient on autopilot versus having the energy to truly 
care for them. And she talks about the best way to deliver bad news. It's not to just wing it to a patient. There's something called the spikes protocol. So she goes into that. And she also talks about her favorite medical humanities book. So it was a real pleasure having Dr. Shirazian. She's such a gem. And I hope you enjoy this episode. So Delhi, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been following you for quite some time. And first of all, did, did you come up with the humanizing healthcare yourself? Did someone help you come up with that? Because I think <laughs> as an optometrist, that's really clever. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Um, I was actually talking with a friend about, you know, this project and thinking about what I wanted to name it. And I looked up on Instagram, just regular humanizing healthcare and the normal spelling, and it was already taken. And so literally we texted at the same time, human I, E-Y-E. And then I was like, no, it's corny. And then I thought more about it. And I was like, you know what? It kind of embodies everything that I'm trying to, to portray here. So it, it stuck. Yeah, I don't think it's corny. I think it's really clever and yeah. so fitting on so many levels um but so yeah so talk about if you can share with us your background as an optometrist and a little bit about who you are and your interest because i know you've also done some research and um i have never had an optometrist on the show so this is my first time so i'm very delighted to speak with you yeah so i'm actually originally from st louis missouri and that's where i also went to optometry school at the university of missouri st louis And during my time as a student, um, I really had an opportunity to rotate through a lot of community health centers. That was a really nice part about my school. And I felt like during that time, I got to see firsthand, you know, people that didn't have access to healthcare, you know, weren't insured. And I felt really strongly that these people should still receive compassionate quality care. So actually like thinking back on my optometry school journey, I realized that this concept of humanizing healthcare has maybe been with me longer than I had thought, but it really wasn't until I started my residency program at the Kansas City VA and my residency director, Tim Harkins, had a weekly humanities conference with us. And so this was my first introduction to the art of doctoring from you know optometry school up until that point, I was just really focused on like, I'm gonna pass boards and I'm gonna make sure I know all the signs and symptoms of these diseases. And I thought that's what made a good doctor. And it wasn't until I really dove into the medical humanities that I realized like, wow, I totally kind of missed the ball on like what good doctoring is and what's included in that. And so we read a bunch of papers and articles on the topic. And when it came to our first residency project, he was like, you know, you guys can pick whatever you want. And I was like, well, could I pick, you know, patient doctor communication? And he's like, well, sure. So I spent a lot of time doing research and looking up evidence on that. And that was kind of the springboard that started all of this. And so when it came time to apply to jobs, I applied to optometry schools because I wanted to teach. And my presentation in my job interviews was on patient doctor communication, which was a little bit risky, I feel like. because it's kind of like a a soft skill and like most people would present on like inocular disease or something 
you know, along that vein. But I felt like, you know, this is what I want to bring to the table and I want to be somewhere that also aligns with that. So I ended up here in New York at SUNY College of Optometry. And I do a lot of the teaching in the patient doctor communication stuff in our curriculum. So in the first year, I do all the lectures in it. And I also co-teach um, an elective course on the art of doctoring too. So I kind of started this Instagram page because I realized, you know, I can only share this information with my students and my colleagues. And I really wanted to spread it more to um, the healthcare as a whole, because I feel like it could inspire so many people to kind of go down this path as well and to really reevaluate, you know, our role as, as healthcare providers. Yeah. And there's definitely that the science we need, but there's that art that we're not really taught in schooling. And yeah. it's been, we'll get into this in a little bit. I want to save that question for a little bit, but before we go into all that, I want to ask you, have you ever experienced burnout as a healthcare provider, as a student, as a, in academia, well, I feel like burnout as a student is like a given. Yeah. <laughs> I just say that. <laughs> I mean, like, I felt like my identity as a student was being a student. Like, people would ask me if I had hobbies, and I was like, studying count? Is studying. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like we can all relate to that on some level. Um, but, you know, in terms of, like, my professional career, thankfully, I mean, I'm young in my career as well, so maybe I don't have enough years of this, but... I think this past year has just really been extremely difficult with with COVID and the pandemic. And you can probably relate to this too as an OT, but you know, you never think about your career as potentially being, you know, life-threatening. I don't want to say it, that sounds really harsh, yeah. but you know, you never think about going into work and, you know, potentially catching something from one of your patients. You know, as as optometrists, yeah, people can have um, contagious eye conditions, but you know, it's never on this level, like, like COVID was. So I feel like the fear really consumed me and it was hard to, you know, there were days where I was like, you know, I, I wish I wasn't essential. You know, this is, it's really hard to, to find that motivation for taking care of patients when you feel like there's just so much fear surrounding it. So yeah. thankfully things have gotten much better. We have vaccines. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but other than that, you know, I've been lucky where I haven't felt a lot of burnout. And I think that's due to a couple of reasons. One is that being in an academic setting, I wear a lot of different hats. So one day I get to be in clinic with our students. The next day I'm teaching in a lab, you know, teaching the students how to do clinical skills. The next day I'm teaching in a classroom setting, you know, a seminar group. So I feel like there's no monotony. So that really helps. And then the other thing too is I feel like this journey of humanizing healthcare has been kind of an antidote to to burnout. You probably know much more about this than I do in terms of like what prevents burnout and what doesn't, but I just feel like connecting with patients, going into every encounter with an intention of really developing a relationship and taking care of people really makes my job so much more fulfilling. And there's a lot of evidence to back this up as well. There's a whole book called Compassionomics that came out, I think it was a couple of years ago, that even talks about how if we show compassion, that actually helps us um, feel good and can, can reduce things like burnout. So I think that um, probably plays into it as well. Absolutely. I know from research, compassion and having self-compassion, especially for healthcare providers, is essential because... It doesn't take away the stress, but it makes the stress more 
bearable and that's really important and I feel from this perspective of looking at the medical humanities that having this compassion requires a level of mindfulness and having that mindfulness as I'm sure you know there's so much evidence out there on mindfulness and I find myself in this job it's my first clinical job I've had since I really dived into this burnout research and now I'm in the process of conducting my own research and I've taught courses and it's really cool and now that I'm back in this clinical setting I noticed that my approach to mindfulness and compassion is has changed my not just how I feel about myself but my care drastically um, so that's really impressive that I'm, I'm impressed with myself <laughs> like I'm yeah. actually able to apply the research to my practice um, and so that's really cool and that's cool that you you took that risk and you made that presentation and it has opened doors for you and here you are yeah. doing it yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned mindfulness too because I think that there's a lot of parallels with you know being present with patients, empathy, compassion, that there's a lot of mindfulness uh, things that go along with that, or what you have to be mindful in order to kind of do those things. So mm-hmm. I've kind of realized like mindfulness has been um, a theme in a lot of this as well. Absolutely. I think it's like the foundation or the glue of all of this. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> so have you ever experienced a situation, whether you were a patient or in a work setting or in, in any of these any any of these roles where you had a dehumanizing or poor experience, you were treated poorly by a fellow healthcare provider or by a colleague. And my sister, unfortunately, she is a therapist, like a mm-hmm. mental health counselor. And she went recently went to the doctor and she had a really terrible experience. Mm-hmm. And she was cry- like she ended up crying and she said he was so rude and dismissed her and I felt terrible and I wish I could have been there to see how that um, interaction played out and it just that was right before this interview so it had me really thinking wow this is <laughs> this is appropriate to yeah. you know to talk about so have you ever experienced that yourself yeah well I will say you know with your with your sister's story that I feel like when you're a healthcare provider and especially if you're mindful and you you're intentional and you've thought about these things like how to take care of patients and how you want them to feel it can be really hard to be a patient because i i don't want to say my standards are high but like i know how i want my patients to feel and i would hope that my doctor wants me to feel that same way too so right. i don't know if you relate to that as well going to healthcare providers but Anyways, I I did have one particular experience that sticks out and I'm happy to share the details, but I I have a family history of thyroid cancer. So every time I go to the doctor, you know, they really check my thyroid carefully, which of course I want them to do. That's to be expected. And one particular provider I went to was like, well, let's just do an ultrasound just to be safe. And I was like, okay, you know, I, I kind of have my own thoughts on like over testing and, you know, because what if we find something and it happens to be a false positive and the test really wasn't necessary. So like, I'm thinking about those, like, you know, things in my head as a, as a healthcare provider. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to be the good patient. So I did the ultrasound, but I don't really feel like she took the time to understand my preferences in terms of like testing. Like she never once asked me like, you know, I'm not really concerned about your thyroid, but you know, maybe we should get this additional test. What do you feel about it? It was just kind of like, this is what I think you should do. And I was like, okay. So anyways, I, t- I did the ultrasound and I was expecting the office, you know, to call me with the results. 
And I had to finally keep calling them and it took three to four weeks for me to hear back. And that is an eternity when you're waiting to know whether or not you might have cancer, you know, I know the odds were low, but still in the back of your mind and you're like, well, there's a chance, I guess, if we're doing this ultrasound. And I just thought about, wow, like even keeping patients waiting a day, a week, a whole month is, is agonizing. And so I try to keep that in mind, you know, when I have patients and we're waiting on results, like I call them right away, or I try my best to just to not keep them waiting. But anyways, I have a provider now who are very much on the same page. Um, We had a long discussion about, you know, risks, benefits of of ultrasounds for for thyroid. And I felt like we have a better patient doctor relationship where she kind of hears my my take on things. And I also respect her um, opinions as well. So I just try to keep that in mind with testing, over testing, Mm -hmm. keeping patients waiting for results, because it can be so anxiety producing when you're on the other side. Oh, yeah. And as a healthcare provider going to appointments, I have this, my own internal burnout detector, and I can guess, oh, this, this (laughs) provider is really burned out. And I, or maybe they're just having a bad day, but I'm very, I don't think I'm a difficult patient, but I'm very critical (laughs) on the inside. So yeah. So yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I haven't had an experience quite like my sister's, but I've definitely been dismissed or I've had, first of all, for, for for example, I've been to a dermatologist since I was 12 because I've had Mm -hmm acne since I was that age and then I had visited I've seen so many derms I went to one new derm and they wanted to prescribe me Accutane right away whereas I went to other derms and they're like you're not an appropriate candidate for that and give me a very like in-depth detail and I could have sworn this derm that wanted to provide me Accutane didn't even get as close to my face as he should have like to like yeah. really examine my face um I didn't feel that I was receiving personalized care and then now actually my derm is someone from Instagram believe it or really? not so <laughs> and Amy from the skin enthusiast she's amazing and so oh. when I see her even it's last time I saw her was a virtual treatment but I know like I'm getting amazing care and so it does I think that's really cool about Instagram so you could now you can find providers and it's yeah really awesome. <laughs> well totally I think um it provides a lot more transparency in terms of like who your provider is and it kind of almost in the opposite way like humanizes our our healthcare providers too and and being able to get a glimpse into that but I'm with you. I think I, I really try not to be critical of my healthcare providers because I know like I've had days where it's been really tough or you have, you know, those couple of emergencies that come in and you're running behind and you just feel mm-hmm. like you're kind of drowning. So I really try to keep that in mind and practice that compassion towards them. But at the end of the day, like you really need someone who you feel like is listening to you and is on the same page. And, and that's just a, a non-negotiable. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like yesterday was a really tough day for me. I felt like the best way I could describe it on my drive home was a balloon deflating. I had all this energy. And then when I was driving home, I was letting it all out. And it was it was kind of rough yesterday, just a lot of highly involved patients. But I, I do my best. That mindfulness piece that I mentioned earlier really mm-hmm. plays a role in like checking in with myself throughout the day. And I know you were really big on, you, you mentioned earlier that presentation 
you gave was the quote unquote soft skills. Mm -hmm. And we talk about soft skills, but you are like me, evidence-based and you like hard data. (laughs) And what are some of the, I know you have different examples, but what are, what, what are some of that hard data in terms of um, that patient doctor or mm-hmm. patient healthcare provider relationship and humanizing the or bringing that art of care mm-hmm. into a science? Yeah. So I love, yeah, I love talking about the hard data because as I've mentioned, I feel like a lot of providers, people, when you, when you hear like patient doctor communication or like humanizing healthcare, it's like, okay, yeah, that's like the soft stuff. Um, so I really love like digging into the evidence and sharing that with people. Cause it's like, no wait, we have evidence for this too. Um, and a lot of my page, uh, if you go on it, obviously you'll see a lot of it, um, is data driven. A lot of it is also like, I love sharing quotes mm-hmm. or books or other passages as well. Cause I think that's just as important, but I try to sp- sprinkle in that evidence too, just to kind of say, Hey, I'm not just saying we should do these things. Um, this is also based on studies. So Um, A couple of things, first doctors on average uh, interrupt their patients within 11 seconds. So this study was done in 2019 and they recorded patient encounters. So after the provider elicited the chief complaint or asked, you know, what what brings you in today? They timed how long it took the doctor to interrupt the patient. And on average, it was only 11 seconds. Mm. So if you think about like how important the chief complaint is, like, I don't know what the patient wants or needs unless I listen to them. And so we have such a tendency. So if a patient says like, I have blurry vision, it's like, I want to jump in and be like, okay, which eye, how long, but we really have to sit back and let the patient tell their story because then we're actually going to get most of the information that we need anyways. Mm -hmm. So a similar study was actually done in 1984, and they found that the average time to interruption was 18 seconds. So that was like the original data that I had been using, but this newer study had come out, and now I'm like, wow, we're actually going the wrong way with that. So uh, I try to keep that in mind when I'm talking to patients. You know, I'm bad at this too, but if you're you're more mindful about it, (laughs) the less likely you are um, at interrupting your patients. A couple Mm -hmm. of other things, Um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons did an extensive survey on their patients and their doctors about communication skills. And they found that 75% of the doctors thought they communicated really well with their patients, but only 25% of the patients agreed that their doctor communicated effectively with them. Mm -hmm. So there's this huge gap in how well we think we're doing and how well our patients actually think we're doing. And I think we overestimate our communication abilities a lot because as healthcare providers, communicating in that healthcare setting is a lot different than just talking to your friends and when you're hanging out. And I don't feel like a lot of that is taught as much as it should be, whether that's in medical schools, optometry schools, et cetera. So I think that that data is interesting. And a couple of other ones, it takes on average 49 seconds for a doctor to prescribe a medication to a patient. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, we we talk about things um, like adherence and how patients don't take their medications, yet we don't even take a full 60 seconds, a full minute to actually tell our patients why they should take the medication, what side effects there might be, how often to take it. Um, So how are we expecting our patients to actually follow directions if we can't even take time to explain them properly? 
So I think those are a few of the, I could go on and on, but those are the few, <laughs> the few I think, um, shocking ones where people are like, wait, I don't do that. And then if you actually mm. go into your next patient encounter and you see if you interrupt your patients, you'll actually be surprised. Because when I first read it, I was like, oh, that sucks, but that's not me. Yeah. I realized, wait, that's kind of me. <laughs> so I think um, just being cognizant of these things can help us um, improve these skills. Oh, definitely. I have, you have me thinking about a few things. Which direction do I want to go in? <laughs> well, let's start with, first of all, the difference between patient adherence and patient compliance. And I, many moons ago, I did an episode with my husband when he was co-hosting the show with me. He's no longer because he would prefer to be on the back end. But we talked <laughs> about, you know, why patients are quote unquote non-compliant. And that's like, there's a slew of things that can go into that. And that's, it's not that they're non-compliant. It's that how could you as a provider, what could you have done differently to increase exactly. that, their understanding? Maybe they didn't understand or like, you know, there's so many reasons. So, so what's the difference between the two? Yeah, so this is, I thought was actually interesting because I was using these terms interchangeably, adherence and compliance. Uh, but after doing some more research, compliance is more uh, like the provider tells the patient to do something and they are just told to comply. So this doesn't really have a lot of input from the patient. So back to my example of the ultrasound, like I had no input. It was like, you comply, this is what I'm telling you. Um, uh, versus adherence is thought to be um, adhering to something is thought to be kind of like the patient and the provider are in agreement with this treatment plan and the patient has a say in it and therefore they will follow those instructions much better or we hope so at least. Mm -hmm. So adherence is more of like the term that is preferred to be used because it's more patient centered. But um, I think just depending on the data that you look at, uh, I think they're, they're still sometimes used interchangeably. True or false, you have thought about leaving patient care or having a non-clinical side job. If that's true, that's totally okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. If you're interested in making that leap either part-time or full-time, the non-clinical 101 course is the charcuterie to your board. My husband, Mike, took this course at the beginning of the pandemic and successfully landed an account executive role for a rehab EMR company. I can't tell you how happy he is working remotely and stepping outside of direct patient care, but still working within the clinical world. This course offers comprehensive information, resources, and step-by-step -step guidance about making the right moves into the non-clinical world. Mike's most valuable takeaways were learning how which roles best align with his interests and personality and how to stand out in the non-clinical world through strategic job searching and resume planning. You can use my unique affiliate link and save 50% off the course. Link is in the show notes or visit joyenergytime.com forward slash resources. Mm, that's really good to know. And how many times do we just expect our patients to comply with what we have to say? Yep. Um, and so as an OT in school, we, in terms of my schooling, we really focus on client-centered practice. So making it, making our approach and treatment with interventions very focused on the client and their goals and their desires. Um, and now 
I'm thinking about when I was an adjunct, I co-taught human interactions. We had a class dedicated just for this. And we learned about, well, this was when I was a student, but then also teaching it, mm-hmm. co-teaching it. I had to re- I had to brush up on a few things. So one of the one of my favorite things from that class is ORS. So ORS stands for open questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And I find myself doing this a lot. So even especially when I'm doing an evaluation and I'm talking to a parent because I'm in pediatrics, so getting that history uh, and talking to the parent, I will reflect back statements they've made. I try to stray from yes no and ask more open-ended questions and summarizing what they've told me and giving them the space to to talk and to give and now I'm thinking like how often do I interrupt them so now I'm thinking I'm like hmm (laughs) but yeah so ORS is really it's a cool technique um and we practiced it and it's also about that adherence because we're Mm -hmm. making sure that as providers, we're on that same page and we're not just telling them to quit smoking or to, yeah, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think it it's like you have to have the patient's input. So even like there are some conditions where like you have to go for one or two treatment options. There's really right. like no other way around it. But I think when there is some flexibility, like really just asking our patients, like this is what I want to prescribe for you. Uh, this is what I think would be best. Like, do you think you're going to be able to do this? <laughs> is this something that would work for you? Does this sound okay? And like, I think even just asking that simple question of like, would this work for you? Um, it allows them an opportunity to be like, wait a second, I can't take this medication four times a day because I'm going to definitely forget, you know? So then you can explore other options and kind of get ahead of adherence or non-adherence, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think there's ways around that too. But I'm curious, as an OT, did you guys learn about communication skills? Was that like emphasized in your training? Yeah, we learned different approaches, like different use. There, We call it therapeutic use self. Okay. So we learned different. There's the cheerleader, collaborator. There's different. Mm-hmm. We learned different approaches to in, in terms of communication and some patients might need a different approach and yeah that's what this class really went into yeah okay because I'm always curious because some health professions I feel like get a lot more of this than others like optometry I feel like is a mixed bag just depending on like what school excuse me what school you went to I feel like medical school has really jumped on board with this a lot more than some of you know the other specialties I feel like yeah, it's good. And I know in our curriculum, we focused heavily on that. Yeah. But of course, it's always about learning because we can learn something in school. But then when you get out and practice it and you absorb the energy and how your coworkers and your the culture of that organization, how they do things, you might kind of slip into some bad habits. And yep. Yeah. <laughs> So do you have any examples or any um, either personal examples or asking questions that are more appropriate for patients and getting to know them and versus from a place of shaming or judgment or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of like adherence. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think just asking, I think first off the tone. So no matter what question you ask, if it's in like a judgy tone, then people are going to feel like, ooh. I better answer this the way that she wants me to answer this. Otherwise, she's going to judge me and I don't want to feel shamed. So I think first off, just asking anything non-judgmentally. And I think the most broad question we can ask 
is, you know, what's, what's difficult about following this plan or, oh, I noticed, you know, you haven't refilled your medications in a month or two. Tell me what's, what's been going on with that. Have you been having trouble with it? And allowing that open-ended question um, of just tell me what's going on, I think will allow a more truthful answer versus just like, well, you haven't been missing the doses, right? Or you haven't been skipping those exercises, right? And so Mm -hmm. we can get a much more honest answer from them. So I kind of stick to those just really broad statements in terms of trying to figure out like what's getting in the way um, or like you can kind of try to figure out if it's cost, is it just like they're prioritizing something differently? Because unless we can kind of figure out like what is actually getting in the way, it can be really difficult, I think, to tackle it and to and to get patients, you know, the, the help and the care that they need. Absolutely. How can we learn about our patients and develop a better rapport and relationship outside of their condition? You made that post once and it's about treating a patient versus treating a disease. Mm-hmm. And I think in the daily, we that can get lost unless you have that mindfulness practice, which for me has been so helpful and being grounded in that moment and remembering this is not patient five of the day, but this is so-and-so. And And that really helps me. I never, my first few years of practice that got lost and I was just at this level of performance where I felt like I couldn't, it was this, a lot of stressure and mostly self-induced stress. uh, Did I say stressor? Or pressure. I knew you meant stress and pressure. <laughs> <gasps> oh my god, that's a new word. Well, stressure. Like, yeah, I get it. I know what stressure is. <laughs> okay, that's a perfect. Okay, that should definitely be a new word that we need. <laughs> we need to use stressure. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's where I really was at the time. I was feeling lots of stressure. Yeah. um, And so I was more concerned. And and definitely I have those days too where I have to feel like I'm surviving a little bit more. But then in the midst of that survival in the past, I didn't really get deeper into this mindfulness and even though I did have this training, like yeah. I had mentioned, it's still, you, as a new grad, you're trying to get your bearings and even in different job situations, like I said, different people you work with, you see how they do things and you might absorb it. And so how, how do you go about um, getting to know patients outside of their condition and why is that important? How does that make you a better practitioner? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a, a good question because it's not easy. And like you had mentioned, it's the easy way is actually doing the whole autopilot of just, I'm going to see patient A, B, C, D, that's what they are. I'm going to treat their condition. And, and you're kind of just, you're doing the bare minimum. I mean, you're, you're, you're taking care of the patient, but are you really, are you really taking care of them? And so I feel like this requires effort and it's an intentional choice to really get to know your patients. And when, there's effort involved that takes more time and energy. And so unless you're mindful about it, unless you are in that mindset to, to do it and you remind yourself, it's really easy to slip back into my patient is a diabetic instead of a 63 year old who has diabetes and is also all of these other things. So for me, it really starts before I walk into a patient's room. So I started doing this in residency um, after I realized this quote from from a book that's, you know, every time a patient sees a doctor that they should feel better as a result of seeing them. 
And so I thought I, I would tell myself before I walked into a patient's room, I want this person's day to be better because they came to see me. And when you remind yourself of that, it's much easier to accomplish it versus just like willy nilly walking in, like, I'm just going to do what I need to do here and move on. And so now it's just kind of second nature to me. Like when I walk into a patient's room, I'm like, I'm going to make this person's day better. I'm going to try. And by doing so, like, there's a couple of things I think I do. Uh, one, I always try to use the patient's name, you know, Mrs. Smith, um, instead of just, you know, referring to them as, as no name at all. Or even when I'm talking to the students too, we try to use that language. I, we try not to label patients. I don't want them to just say, you know, this 52 year old patient with glaucoma. I'm like, but who, who is this patient really? And not just beyond that uh, and just go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so I also try to bring up something outside of healthcare too. So sometimes it's a really simple question like, well, what do you, what are your plans for the rest of the day? Or, you know, how'd you get here today? You know, something just outside of healthcare. And that kind of sometimes leads into like fun stories or just so that they have a chance to show me their personality, I think helps remind me like, okay, this is a person who has a life outside of this eye exam today. And mm. I think just really making that conscious effort is, is what it's all about and, and not going into that autopilot. Um, Cause I think we can really easily fall back into that. Yeah. I love your practice, that quote and how that guides you. That's really cool. I read a post from someone, I can't remember who, but they said, your patient is not giving you a difficult time. They're having a difficult time. Yeah. And that has really helped me because working in pediatrics, I, <laughs> I have had many patients that have a lot of challenges. And I used to think, well, they're giving me such a difficult time. I'm having such, such a difficult session. And we and that kind of goes back to that can tie into that compliance because mm -hmm. um, we're, we if we view it from that lens, like they're for whatever reason being difficult we have to consider they're having a difficult time. And if we want to do our jobs to make them feel better coming out of there before they walked in, then we need that perspective has shifted that for me and keeping me grounded and not yeah. getting into that autopilot. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we also have to remember, and I'm always reminded of this when I'm a patient, like usually no one goes to the doctor feeling great. Like, even if you have nothing wrong with you and it's a checkup, like I always have anxiety sitting there because <laughs> you're like, something could be wrong. You never know. So I think also trying to remember that, like, you know, people are coming to you in a very vulnerable state and, and just, you know, being mindful of that and wanting to make that person feel better as a result. Like when you are actually wanting to do that, I feel like you're much more successful. And then, than just like going in and going out of every room and hoping you did well that day. Yeah. And for the person listening, thinking, well, I'm so burned out. I don't, I barely have time to breathe, let alone keep all these things in mind. Have you ever encountered that challenge in either your students or other people you've worked with where it's hard to maintain that client centered, that humanistic yeah. approach? Oh, totally. I think when days get really busy, um, you know, I'm, I'm usually supervising multiple students at a time. And when things get really busy, it's like, sometimes that can be the first thing to go because you're like, all right, I need the bare minimum right now. And that's like, what do I need to take care of the patient? Um, so I think just trying to make it a habit and maybe finding something to remind you of that. So 
for example, if it's like you, you touch the doorknob every time you walk into the patient's room or you're washing your hands every time you're in the patient's room, just kind of like take five seconds, breathe and think like, okay, I want to, I want to help this person. I want to make their day better. And I think that's like the first step in it all is sometimes it just takes that little reminder, that little five seconds of breathing to kind of center you again and to hopefully make you much more successful with that. Yes. Yes. Even days where I'm super overwhelmed, it's that breathing. I like to think of it as an anchor in my chest when I breathe and I take note of that and how, oh, like this is, I'm not seeing 20,000 patients at at this one second, but for some reason it feels like this surge of overwhelm. I'm like, no, I'm taking it one patient at a time. When you take it one patient at a time, it's, it really helps (laughs) one hour at a time. And at the end of the day, like if, unfortunately, if I leave a patient waiting or if, if something happens, I'm just like, you know what, I'm human and this happens and sometimes it's out of my control. So, right. you know, it makes me feel better too. If I walk into a patient's room and I, I apologize, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, I kept you waiting. And then kind of go from there. That helps me feel a little bit better too. And I'm like, okay, I at least acknowledge something that like that, if, if that's the, the reason that I'm stressed or you know, feeling overwhelmed that day. So that can help too. Yeah, absolutely. And I am very interested in the spikes protocol because I've never heard about that. So what, what is that? Yeah, that post got a lot of love, which I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the spikes protocol was actually developed by oncologists and they wanted their colleagues to feel comfortable delivering bad news to patients because this is like a big source of anxiety, I feel like as providers, because we we don't wanna say something that's gonna hurt our patients. We don't wanna be the bearer of bad news, but it's also so important for patients to receive all the information, even if it is bad in order to plan properly for their future. And I had my first encounter with this as a student where I was almost a graduating student. I was end of my fourth year where a doctor, attending doctor just let me deliver this bad news to this patient and oh my gosh, I had never practiced. Um, I just winged it and it was, it was pretty bad. (laughs) So I think about that and how we really have to be prepared for these encounters. So the spikes protocol is an acronym for delivering bad news that healthcare providers can remember and it can kind of help guide you. So I can briefly just review it, but it's not going to be in as much detail as like reading the paper. Um, Mm -hmm. But first the S, the first S begins with setting up the interview. So you want to make sure, you know, you're in a private room with a patient, you appear calm and attentive, uh, you're sitting at eye level, and you want to invite any family or friends into the conversation. The P is patient perception, finding out how much information the patient already knows about their condition, asking them something like, you know, well, what did you first think when you noticed your right eye was blurry to kind of figure out if they have any understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. The I is inviting them to share information. So instead of just like blurting out what's going on, um, this goes back to patient-centered care. Like, you know, I'd love to tell you more about your condition and then answer any questions that you may have. Is that okay with you? That allows the patient to feel a little bit of control over the conversation and the pace of things. K is knowledge transmission to patient. This is when we're going to be delivering the news. So we want to make sure we're doing it in small um, chunks of information, no medical terminology, I love using metaphors and analogies and, you know, photos and diagrams when appropriate, because that can really help with understanding. Um, The E is for exploring emotions and empathizing. 
making sure that we acknowledge what the patient is feeling, validate their concerns. And then the last part is S, strategy and summary, making sure that we have a treatment plan, um, identify resources for support. Sometimes for us, that's low vision services, it's mental health services, and making sure the patient leaves with your contact information. So that's like spikes in a really small nutshell. I do like mm -hmm. whole lectures on it. Uh -huh. um, but I think it's really helpful because if I would have had this as a student in that exam room when I was trying to explain something really complex and bad, um, I think I would have been much more prepared and I would have done it much better. Um, and I always tell my students, you have to practice these conversations. So there are common things that we diagnose that are bad and you should practice how you're gonna explain them to your patient so mm -hmm. that the first time you see it, it's not the first time that you're you're figuring this stuff out. Oh yeah, that's really important. And some things you said, they reminded me of how they could be applied to coworker and staff mm -hmm. interactions. There was one time where I was a, a newer grad and one of the speech language pathologists came in the room, like my room, I wasn't treating at the time, but I was like organizing and she came and she said, she started giving me all this feedback without asking me, without like setting it up. It was completely, I felt ambushed yeah. and she came at it from like a good place. It just like, she came in the room to get something and then she just started and started and I was so overwhelmed and I froze and I actually don't remember <laughs> what she said because it was kind of like just throwing this information at me versus asking for permission and that's all yeah. and you said asking your patient um can I share this or I forgot how you said it but can I share this information yeah. with you and and that and that can also be important when you want to talk to your boss or your supervisor and mm -hmm. and asking for permission can I share my opinion on the matter on xyz with you or can yeah. I can I have like asking for permission ensures a greater psychological safety so for totally. patients for for co-workers for your boss that's just like all around a good practice yeah no that's a really great point i think um i didn't realize that before you mentioned that but i do feel like a lot of these concepts can be in like i guess conflict management i guess you could say right. in terms of like workplace or like even like with your friends like i think even something as simple as like exploring someone's emotions like validating emotions instead of just telling someone everything's going to be okay oh yeah like are, i feel like concepts that we could use in just like everyday life too yeah like that toxic positivity yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> and telling your patients or anyone yeah it's you're okay or it's going to be okay it's dismissing what they're feeling and I've been doing a lot of that where I'm, I'm with my kids and I'm like, I know that it's hard, like whatever it is. Like, I know this is hard for you. Yeah. And it's just like, someone, yeah, like, oh, that's, at least you have one good eye. You know, at least, like right. At least you have one. In, in that class, I, I co-taught the human interactions, the main professor. I was more, to be honest, it was probably more of like a teacher's aide, but it was <laughs> in my OT program and um, it was very cool to have that experience. So the professor I was co-teaching that class with showed a video of how much saying at least yes. is, is harmful because it totally diminishes the pain. And if you're diagnosing or giving bad news, well, I, I, like at least you have one good eye or yeah. at least, you know, you can still walk or whatever it is. Like it's not, doesn't help. It's not helpful. No, they don't want you to point out the good things that like they, they can figure that out. They just want someone to say like, I know how hard this is and 
I know this really is, is frustrating for you. It's, it's difficult. Like people just want to be heard at that point. And so I think, I don't know. I think um, early on in my career and growing up too, when like friends would come to you for advice, like I did a lot of that, like, oh, at least this is fine. Oh, me too. (laughs) I think it comes from a place of just like, sometimes it's really hard to sit with other people's pain and hurt. And it's, it's, we just want to put a bandaid over it. So sometimes I even like have to be like thinking about what I'm about to say to someone when they share something negative with me. And because my first instinct is like, oh, everything's fine. You know, the toxic positivity, like it's going to be great. But then I have to take a step back and be like, okay, that's not the appropriate thing. It's not what they need to hear right now. Yeah. And we want to fix, we naturally just want to fix people and help people feel okay. And that's just the nature of many of us in healthcare. So it's tough to that toxic positivity to unlearn it. (laughs) It is, it is. And and to just be comfortable with people's pain, I think, is, is something I've had to, to learn throughout the years. Yes. Uh, what are your favorite or what are some of your favorite takeaways from your medical humanity books you've read? Because I know you post them and that it's so cool that you're reading those type of books. And I'm sure you're getting so many takeaways. I've read a few, but it's, it's been a while. So I would love to hear like any takeaways that just pop into your mind. Yeah. So I have like a whole library at work of them and I encourage like my students to come borrow them uh, because my residency director and in, in residency had a library of books that we borrowed from. So that kind of like uh, sparked this whole medical humanities books. And so every time there's a new one out, me and my friends always text each other, our friends in optometry, and then kind of tell each other what's what's out there. But one of my favorites that I've, I mention a lot in, on my page is Bernard Lohn's The Lost Art of Healing. For me, that's like my Bible. <laughs> and Dr. Lohn recently passed away at the age of 99. Wow. And I feel like uh, he's taught me so much. It's like, I never met him, but <laughs> I feel mm-hmm. like, um, I know him because I've read his book so many times, but a couple of the takeaways that are really important in that book, the first one, um, that's actually the quote of every time the patient sees the doctor, uh, they should feel better as a result. So that actually came from, from that book. And one thing that I really like that he emphasizes, so he did a lot in the field of cardiology too. Um, he was brilliant and he, he writes this book on, you know, the, the art of doctoring and like the compassion and, and the soft stuff. And I love that he emphasizes that you can't have one without the other. You can't have, you can't be like a technologically savvy doctor, but not have that, you know, art of doctoring and, and human component to it. But you can also be the opposite. You still need that, uh, the, the, clinical skills, the didactic portion of your education in order to properly care for patients. So I feel like that balance of, of what he discusses is, is really important. Um, mm. Another book that stands out is Black Man in a White Coat. We re- recently read that as a part of our community book club project. So our entire college community was invited to read it. And he actually came on Zoom and like spoke. And that was really, really um, insightful. Mm. But one thing I took away from that, especially with everything going on this year in terms of, of race, healthcare, you know, social justice in general, I feel like his main takeaway in that book was it doesn't, you don't require the same race in order to have a connection with someone. And that really goes to what I've been saying all along is like treating people as people, as humans and patients as mm-hmm. humans and not just um, their condition. And so just seeing everyone as an individual, regardless of race, um, is important. And then anything by Danielle Ofri 
is worth reading. She has a book titled What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. And mm. she goes into a lot of the communication stuff. Um, and after I had read it, I actually sent her an email. I like fangirled her. <laughs> and I was like, this is exactly the stuff that I love too. And so it was a lot of mirroring the same patient doctor communication stuff that um, I had been studying at the time. She also wrote a book called What Doctors Feel. And it's all about how our emotions also play into medicine and healthcare. And I read it during a time where, and I don't know if you've ever felt like this, like I have too many feelings. Maybe I shouldn't be in this job because I care too much or like I just, I'm too overwhelmed with my emotions. And that book really helped me feel like having emotions is a very human, normal thing. Mm -hmm. And that's like a normal part of being a healthcare provider. So mm -hmm. yeah, that, that was really insightful in that way. But those, those books stand out to me. Well, we're very similar because I've emailed authors from books I've read and they've been guests on the show. So, really? Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, I fangirl too. And it's like a perfect, this show is a perfect opportunity for me to get to just not even, not just speak to them, but then like impart their message to a bigger audience. So, I mean, you know what I'm trying to say. Yes, yes. Um, um, and part to like just spread their message, to spread yeah. their message to other people. Um, so yeah, it's been great to have that this opportunity. Yeah. But that's really cool. I have to look into some of those books. Thanks for recommending them. <laughs> yes, I have a whole lot more. If anyone's interested, they can reach out or my page. I think I have a lot more have listed as well. Awesome. Well, this has been really fun. I think we have personally connected and I know we have a lot of similarities, but professionally that we care about the same things. And this is, this was an amazing conversation and I hope listeners can take something out of it that can impact their care. Even if it seems small, like a lot of these things may seem small, but they're very big and in the end of, in the scheme of things. Um, so where can people find you and connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as humanizing healthcare and humanizing with the EYE, human eyezing for the eye doctor. Um, but that's where, where I am. Awesome, Deli. Well, thank you for coming on the show. What makes you your most lit up self? I would say that's a good question. <laughs> I think I would say connecting with people. You know, whether that's my students, my patients, um, my friends, my family, I think that's that's what makes me the most lit up. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice talking to you. Hey, you are here for the after party. And in the after party, I talk about this week's joy tidbit. So a little tidbit to brighten up your day, brighten up your week. And today's tidbit is da, 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 discipline in self-care is necessary. And discipline can come in handy when you are choosing between something you want to do right now and something you have to do. And I face this all the time. There's temptations all the time. And one of them being your phone. So I can innocently deceive myself into thinking, 
oh, you know what? I have all these notes to do, but I'm just going to log in to Instagram really quick. And then I know when I say that and I think, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to be a few minutes, it can turn into 10, 15 minutes. And then I'm feeling guilty because I know I should have been finishing up my documentation so that I can rest. And the easiest thing for me to do to create this discipline just using this example is to put my phone in another room when I just want to get through my notes so that I could spend the rest of my evening relaxing. And then I use my phone as a reward. And we don't want to do unpleasant things, right? Like we would rather choose something pleasurable. So doing documentation at night, not pleasurable. And I'd rather get that quick dopamine hit by checking my Instagram. And when I succumb to this, I don't feel that great about myself because time is time and that's energy. And even if it's 10 minutes, I mean, it never is. It turns into 15, 20 minutes. So I've been working on being disciplined with that. And I have a rule of thumb. If there's something that my brain is telling me I want to procrastinate on or I can do it later, it's usually something that I kind of need to do sooner rather than later and that I could really benefit from doing sooner rather than later. And so when I find myself procrastinating, whether it's getting out of bed five minutes later or um, waiting to brush my teeth right before bed versus like right after dinner because I'm so tired right before bed um, and doing my whole face wash routine. Sometimes if I don't have discipline and I think, oh, I'll do it right before bed, my power down hour is really effective. And I'm, I sometimes I fall asleep during my power down hour. Um, so it's best if I get all my routine stuff done before I initiate this power down hour because I have fallen asleep on the couch. So it's important for me to have discipline around things that I don't want to do. I mean, I know some people that love doing their skincare routine and they love flossing and all these things. And yes, I believe in the importance of hygiene, obviously. I just will put it off until I'm too tired and I will do a half-assed job. Or I'd rather be on my phone than do documentation. Or this could happen with uh, exercise. This isn't really, that's not really my particular case. Um, that's an area where I find I do have a great deal of, of discipline in. And it's something that even though I'm not motivated to do a workout and even though I'm dragging my feet to the gym here, I am still going to do it. And I think what helps a lot is in this apartment complex because of COVID, we have to schedule a time slot to go to the gym. So I kind of like that because it forces me to have to be at the gym at a certain time. I have an appointment. And so if you tend to skip out on things like moving your body or getting your work done on time, what can be helpful is setting your own appointments for these commitments. So setting appointment reminders or scheduling them out on your phone or in your planner or however you want to do it. And self-care, I do believe, you know, there is freedom in, in being spontaneous and having freedom in your self-care routine but I think there's also the art of self-care has to be balanced with discipline and being disciplined and committed to doing things that are best for you even when you don't feel like doing things 
And don't get me wrong because I do snooze. It's just a matter of am I going to snooze or am I going to scroll on my phone in bed for five more minutes, 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, or am I going to just do my five minute scrolling so that I could get up, take my morning walk and then get my day started at an appropriate time versus wanting the comfort of staying in bed and missing my morning walk, which is so important to me, the days I don't go to clinic. And so it's a matter of prioritizing. Yes, bed is comfortable. I want to be in bed forever. I don't want to get up, but my morning walks make me feel really good. And they're hard to get to because it's early in the morning. It's still cold AF outside. It was 19 degrees this morning, but I still got up, got dressed and did it. And once I'm out on my walk, right as the sun is rising, that's my favorite time. So I have a little time frame to get out and do my walk because the magic of the sunrise is really important to me. So it's worth leaving the comfort of my bed for. And that is my way of staying disciplined. Within that discipline, I find freedom. Within discipline, I find a sense of comfort because I do have this discipline. Am I always disciplined? No. And being disciplined doesn't make you perfect. Doesn't mean you're always perfect and do everything perfectly. But having discipline adds more structure and thus this structure provides more freedom in your life. So if you're a big procrastinator, and I find myself doing this with unpleasant things like opening a scary mail, like AKA bills or doing my documentation in a timely manner. That's even more of a reason to get to these tasks right away so you can scratch them off your to-do list and then enjoy your free time or enjoy something else. This is all I got. So I'll see you next week. Take care. Do you want to help support our show in five seconds or less? Of course you do. All you have to do is subscribe to the show. And if you have about 30 seconds, then rate our show and leave us a quick little review. Share something that you love from the show, a favorite guest, something you've been able to learn from the show. And we appreciate that so much. So remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share our show with your friends, your coworkers, anyone that you think that this show would benefit. We appreciate it so much. Thank you.